The worldwide conspiracy has discovered there is an even bigger conspiracy. Yes, yes, no. Everything you know is wrong. Hello and never goodbye and don't look behind you, but it's me and I'm with you again to look at the arcane wonders of our wonderful world. Everything you know is wrong. Why, it's preposterous! Thank you very much! I'm Tony Epstein, and this is the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. beginning the end so where to start this is a journey into sound brought to you in living color on wtdr information in the form of energy streams in streams in simultaneously through all of our sensory systems in the form of energy our sensory system. and then it explodes into this enormous collage of what this present moment looks like what it feels like All the dangers which you have feared are unnecessary productions of your own mind. Whether you experience heaven or hell, remember that it is your mind which creates them. My guest is Howard Eisenberg. He's a medical doctor with training in both psychology and psychiatry. He's been a lecturer in parapsychology at the University of Toronto and an associate professor of medicine at the University of Vermont. He's been on a lifelong quest to discover the true nature of reality. And in 1977, he wrote Inner Spaces, Parapsychological Explorations of the Mind. And 45 years later, his new book, Dream It to Do It, The Science and the Magic, which we'll be talking about today, is the culmination of his quest to learn how reality works. So, Howard, welcome to the Magical Mystery Tour. Hi, Tony. I'm glad to talk to you. I would like to begin with how your lifelong passion to discover the nature of reality began. It's a good, deep question, and I'll try my best to describe it in a somewhat connected way. 
I would say around age eight to 10, somewhere in that area, young, you know, childhood, I became aware of being aware as opposed to just going through life kind of as many of us do robotically. I became aware that there were various things in the world that didn't necessarily make sense or I wasn't necessarily comfortable and willing to just accept. Uh, one example being that people generally back then, again, I'm talking <laughs> over a half century ago, when you were born in a family with a particular uh, religious orientation, it was just assumed and expected you would fall into step. And you were also often discouraged back then from getting close socially with people from different religions, even if it was a different denomination of, for example, Christianity, which is interesting because there's 40,000 different denominations of Christianity alone in the world right now. But coming back to the, the childhood experience I grew up with. So I thought, like, it's kind of ridiculous. They profess to believe in God, a creator, but everybody else has it wrong. And yes, this is supposedly the God and creator for all. So even as a young child, I, I realized the, if you like, logical disconnect on that. In my development of an awareness of being aware, I also became increasingly curious about almost everything. Philosophy, in terms of the roots of the words, is philosophia, love of knowledge. And so again, it's just incredible thirst to learn whatever I could about almost everything back then. It was available to me as a child. This is pre-computer times, obviously. And I became aware at an early age, perhaps around 12 or so, 11, 12, of science fiction books. And I became fascinated reading about the speculations of the basically just fictional writers. They weren't scientists necessarily. And I found it fascinating that some of the things they were speculating on People like, for example, one of the very famous science fiction writers of the 20th century, Arthur C. Clarke, the technologies, the devices they were imagining, things like our home computers, email, internet, streaming video, smartwatches, interstellar travel, all of these things have, as you know, since become realities. And yet this just came out of someone's imagination. And I saw a number of examples like that. And one of the things I picked up too in the science fiction literature, again, this is very early childhood, was things like teleportation, time travel, telepathy. And I became intrigued. I wondered, could these so-called, if you want to call them more softer things in the hard technological devices, R.C. Clark and Vision, could these be real too? And again, this is pre-computer time, my early mid-teens. And I started uh, just scouring bookstores. I was probably one of the best customers for my age. I'd come up often with a pile of 10, 12 books, seriously. A tremendous, you know, uh, need to consume and understand these things. So I did find that there really was some researchers doing serious research on what they called psychic abilities, or even though it's not totally correct, ESP, extrasensory perception. And I found out that the person heading up that initiative, who's kind of the, the godfather of what's now called parapsychology, the scientific study of psychic phenomena in the U.S. and in some ways in the Western world, was J.B. Ryan, down at the University of North Carolina in, in Chapel Hill. And I actually went out and met him physically and was introduced to some of the researchers in his lab. And I decided I want to make this my career. I think this is so important to understand, again, these extended powers of our mind to also just live a, a fuller and hopefully more harmonious, connected life with others. And so I did go back to Montreal, where I grew up. And I convinced the administration of McGill University against their preference to allow me to do a psychology graduate program 
in the research area of telepathy, even though the head of the Department of Psychology back then was the famous psychologist, D.O. Hebb. He's the one who also coined the terms, you know, cells that fire together, wire together, which is the basis of neuroplasticity, which is, you know, quite uh, a hot topic in the scientific community right now. And he had said some years later that he rejected all of the evidence for psychic phenomena, parapsychology, not because he was aware of any flaws in the research or because he suspected that the researchers weren't perhaps being honest about representing the findings, but rather because it didn't make sense to him. He thought it was theoretically impossible. And he actually said in print, he rejects it because it's a priori impossible. And he even said in print explicitly, because he's very outspoken, he admits this is prejudice. But that's where I decided I would do my research. Now, to really get through the, the logjam of, you know, the conventional establishment, as I said, I, I worked on administration at McGill University to convince them to let me do this as a joint degree program. So I would do this master's research program on telepathy and at the same time do a medical degree at McGill. Back then, McGill was probably ranked, we're talking a little over half a century ago, in the top six internationally for both its medical school and its psychology department. And they came up with various reasons why I couldn't do these things, of course, but I, I prevailed, obviously, as the title of my book, Dream It to Do It. <laughs> I could imagine <laughs> somehow being able to do it. I did it. But you have to persist, which is one of the guidelines, as you know, I give later on in the book when you're working with manifestations. Well, that research on telepathy was extremely successful. Uh, I wrote my first book as also subsequently a textbook to introduce it as a credit course at the University of Toronto, where it was extremely popular. And then I felt, you know, I sort of paid my dues in the field of parapsychology and done my good work. And now maybe get on with more serious things in life, too. So I was pursuing my, my medical work. And also academically, I had several different faculty positions. I enjoyed teaching. And also on the entrepreneurial side, I, I became a management consultant early on and developed training programs for Fortune 100 companies around the world. Had a very well-rounded life at that point. Things came to an interesting head, so to speak, almost three years before I wrote the book in 2018. I was invited to do a keynote presentation by an old acquaintance in the field of parasitological related things who was with an association of therapeutic touch healers, practitioners, who would touch either physically and thought they would, through energy transformations, help heal someone. And some thought they could do it also from a distance. We call it distant healing, as they would visualize and, and have that intention. And they honored me, as I said, after many years of not being actively in the field of parapsychology anymore, but still having prominence in the other work I was doing to come and give a keynote for their annual conference. And to honor the invitation, I did a very deep dive back into the parapsychological literature, if you can believe it, for half a century, <laughs> that long. And also modern physics, which is deep and very you know, weird, quirky, as they might say. And also deeply into different indigenous cultures and their beliefs, their conceptions of realities, their values. Other religions, comparative religions, going back to the earliest recorded history of religions that we have. Tying it into to the latest findings on brain research, experiences people have meditation, experiences people have with psychedelic chemicals plant-derived medicines, very, very broad. And then something changed. Up to then, so up to 2018, 
I was living in this material world, but aware of being aware that there's an other level. This is only part of how things are and how they could be. But otherwise, I was still working with what we sometimes call the materialistic reductionist paradigm reality. In other words, the assumption, most people think it's obvious, but it's not. It's really a belief. The assumption that the world is a material world and we are a product of complex evolution through time, which has given us our sort of organic computer brain, which in turn generates our consciousness and mind. And so when I was thinking uh, earlier on of the findings in my own research in parapsychology with psychic phenomena, I was thinking of these extended abilities of the mind, of the brain. And even though we couldn't measure any energy, that would explain how somebody, for example, could influence an object externally, which we call psychokinesis or PK, or healing and so on. Not only could we not measure it, we couldn't block it. And I would even you with people in Faraday cages, for example, wouldn't block telepathic transmission, even at great distances. So there was no way to measure it or block it. But still the assumption was, and mine as well, that somehow, you know, there's still things for us to discover, but it will still somehow relate to the physical brain as somehow the source of all of this. So when I did that deep dive in 2018, suddenly I had a what you would call a realization. I don't mean that I heard voices or anything of that nature, but I had a, a realization or maybe even more a revelation that I had been wrong, that almost our entire world on this level of reality has it wrong. The brain does not produce consciousness. Consciousness dreams up the brain. And the reason why these last few years, we're, we're living in such dark times in so many ways, and I don't want to be depressing, but quickly. So we have the, a pandemic, which we're not managing, and we may be over it, but it's not done with us. Here in the Toronto area, where I'm based currently, we're going into an eighth wave, more and more mutations, and also less compliance with vaccination. It's just like mass insanity in terms of that. And then we have the you know, global climate change reality. And things are happening right now. A large portion of Pakistan, is, as we speak, as you may know, is underwater. I think around 30, 40 percent. There's been tremendous droughts in the American West and, and no sign that it's going to change for the better in the near future. And yet people still often either are climate deniers. They say it's just not true or worse. They just bury heads in the sand and don't even want to have any awareness of it at all. So. These types of things and the ideological extremes we're seeing in various parts of the world, the wars that are going on, even, for example, right now, the Russian war in Europe, the increased uh, racial friction that we're seeing in various parts of the world, including where we thought we were more enlightened here in North America. So to me, all of these things suddenly made sense in the sense that it's all about being overly distracted and overly valuing material reality, things and advancing ourselves in a competitive way to get you know beyond where others are, whether it's in our achievements in terms of how far we go in our education, how much money we make, how much property we own, how famous we are, whatever. But we're, we're driven largely in this culture by such things, but it's collapsing right now. And sadly, and doubly sadly for me, not only is it collapsing because it affects all of us, but I really see it. And these last few years, I've been seeing things happening before they happen. And I still see things happening that I unfortunately know are going to happen. 
And I'm desperately trying to be a voice of reason, to shut out, wake up everybody. We've got to reverse course and fast while we still have some chance to have some semblance of a good life for ourselves and the children to come. So I wrote this book, Dream It to Do It, which was released in the fall of 2021 as a wake-up call to the world. I've actually self-published it at my expense. I did not do it for income. I did not do it for fame. In fact, some may be very offended or think I'm discrediting my professional credentials coming out with this. Although the feedback, I'm glad to say, professionally has been 100% and overwhelmingly positive. But it's a difficult book because if you read it seriously, it's really provocative. I mean, it's really saying pretty well for most people. Your whole notion of what you've been taught to be real is wrong. But on the other hand, I don't just write it, as you know, as a, a critique of that. Quite the opposite. I explain how, by contrast, not only is the material conception of a world of physicality out there wrong, but the good news is our inner world is real. And in our inner world, it's infinite in terms of the resources that we can draw upon, be it power, be it wisdom, whatever you may want to think of. Again, as you know, all of the major inventions I point out in my book, everything comes out of imagination. It wasn't just the science fiction writers who, you know, coincidentally had the correlation later on with some of these scientific developments of some things they envisioned. All things that we have in life first come out of imagination. And I came to realize, too, that the underlying source, which is real, is one in which we're all connected, as opposed to our sense in this level reality of being disconnected, which is partly why we get entrapped by materialism. And the other challenge I realized is our egos. In fact, I'm now working on another book on, and it says ego management, because ego drives us to want to keep getting more and bettering our circumstances and putting such a priority on that that it doesn't so much matter what happens to others. And we see that right now in the world, where so much of the world is suffering. For example, the ravages right now as we speak of climate change, and it's the third part of the world, third world, as they say, which is not technological, which has not been producing these various gases again, which, which are causing our problem global warming. And yet right now, immediately, they're paying that price. We have a world record of climate and political refugees in the millions, and it's disrupting everything. People really have to get that we're all in this together. I even like um, Buckminster Fuller, the um, architect and philosopher some decades ago, where he coined the metaphor spaceship Earth. You know, we have to think that we're all on this same planet together. It has limited resources, and also our waste products, our toxic products, don't just disappear. They still go into this common planet in which we live. And so an enlightened attitude would be to be more cooperative with each other and try to have more sustainable practices like the indigenous practice of the Iroquois, the law of seven generations, to think things out in terms of how sustainable what could impact be many years and generations literally into the future, as opposed to our Western obsession, particularly which short-term consideration primarily based on fear and greed. Yeah, you've put all of that in a, in a nice little nutshell. Hopefully not too much. <laughs> no, 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 no. This is the physical reality that we're facing right now and that we have to grapple with soberly, 
and honestly. Yeah. Yeah. Even in, you know, in one of my fields, because I have several, you know, in, in the psychiatric work I do, just a month or so ago, there was a major research article that came out that looked at all of the evidence for the most popular category currently of antidepressants, and it has been for a few decades now, the so-called SSRIs, starting with Prozac, Zoloft, Selexa, Cidiplam, and many other variations of it, that are still the main ones that are used clinically when people have anxiety and depression disorders. And yet this research paper said, looking at all of the data, this is just to say a month or so ago, that there was absolutely no statistical evidence to prove that it really helped beyond just a placebo effect. And yet billions of dollars have been spent on these drugs and wasted instead of how they could have been used to educate people better or improve living conditions. So like so much of what we have is so wrong, so wrong. But the message in my book is a optimistic and hopeful one. If we accept the wake up call soon enough and enough people, you know, get out and, and share this awareness, this message, I'm trying to make myself available and whatever I can. And I welcome again, this opportunity with, our discussion now and for your listeners to be able to hear it later and i just hope again people keep spreading this awareness and understand it's not based on faith it's not a pop fad what i present in my book is the most comprehensive consideration of everything we know in science tied logically impeccably logically together which proves doesn't suggest as a theory or hypothesis. It proves the primacy of consciousness. It proves that our primary reality is the reality of our mind of consciousness, not the physical material one that most people have been taught to believe and still do believe in. And then at another level, when I say primacy of consciousness, you know, then we get into the source historically of many of, if not all of the major religions and what we also, you know, learn about in the shamanic traditions and what some people have experienced in what we call spontaneous mystical experiences and what some people more recently are perhaps experimenting and experiencing with psychedelics, although that could be tricky experimentation. But these different, you know, sources of experience of this other realm are very convergent with what many people think of and what many religions describe as a creator, God. And we've grown up in these last few decades being taught that even things like religion and the notion of God was, you know, primitive superstitious belief. And that, you know, people now who are more scientifically informed realize that just doesn't make sense. It doesn't fit into our world. But as I said, our, our whole notion of materialistic science is right now collapsing. It's not giving us security and comfort, quite the opposite. And interesting too, that the branch of science that generally these last several decades has been considered to be the kind of the leading, the most exemplary area of science for being so impeccable in terms of its controls and the way, again, it's tied together has been modern physics and more recently quantum mechanics, as it's sometimes referred to. And the modern physicists describe a world, which is interesting because they're studying and discussing the material world. But the interesting thing about it is that when you read their latest research, and I, I cited, as you know, many references and actual quotations in my book on this, the leading physicists do not believe that material reality is primary. They too believe, so to speak, it's dreamed up by our minds. 
the opposite of what the public believes and the opposite of what many scientists in other fields believe about physics. But that's the truth. Yes, and that's what makes all of this so mind-blowingly wonderful for me. Something that I have been fascinated with my entire life. And you you mentioned the word God and, and the way human beings throughout the past several millennia have engaged in this kind of relationship or search for God or to attribute this power that we actually have a co-creative participatory relationship with in this world. And yet, and this totally ties into the relationship between the mind and reality. And I would love for you to talk about that. Well, another aspect of our cultural belief, which is incorrect, is to, you know, severely discourage people using imagination. In general, I remember as a young student back in elementary school being reprimanded a few times of my teachers for daydreaming. You know, don't daydream. It's a bad thing to do. In the corporate world, people were expected to, you know, uh, follow the established uh, procedures. And the same thing, believe it or not, even in the academic world in universities, it's it's hard to steer off in different directions. As I said, I, I had to really fight somewhat proactively to be able to do the research I did on telepathy at McGill University. That was not something that would be easily accepted back then. So it's not an easy thing to roll out to the public because there's another reason too, though, I have to point out. So not only again do we have this kind of almost prejudice against imagination, and yet that's really the source for so much that has been of importance in every way in our both culture and our technology. It all only comes from that level. But we also have, besides, you know, just being in part misguided into our beliefs of the mature world out there and and just totally sort of be criticizing religions for not being scientific, not making sense. And this is, again, our, our more recent realities, last few centuries, it wasn't like that for most of recorded history. There's something else that gets in the way for people to have this more comprehensive and accurate understanding of reality. I refer to this in my book as kind of a fail-safe. So we're all connected in this understanding to this common underlying reality. I, I use the expression in my book, I call it the universal mind, but some people would call it to God or God consciousness. And the way I try to understand that and explain it symbolically is to think of an ocean, which is, you know, huge. You can't see, you know, when you're on it, the end of it, so to speak, and you can't, you know, get to the very bottom of it because it's very wide, getting very deep. And the ocean has waves and the waves have a temporary existence. If you did a, for example, video and you did a suddenly freeze frame, you know, you could see a wave still for a moment. But as the video would continue or in real life, you know, that wave will change its shape. It might get larger and might get smaller. I think we are analogous to those wave extensions of the underlying ocean or universal mind. So in a way, we have that as an intimate connection. And so many of the religions, when you decode them, as I try to do in my book as well, I think are really telling us this. For example, when Jesus said, I and the Father are one, but the Father is greater than I, that fits this model. A wave is one with the ocean, but the ocean is greater than the wave. And I could go on with this, but let me go back to this other problem that we have, though. So 
let me go back into some ontology here too in terms of like the why question so if there's this god consciousness which is all-knowing and all-powerful why would it create our world and the analogy that i'd use here is you know ourselves at times when we're alone or bored and again we daydream or we long for some companionship or company or something to take the time a hobby whatever it might be so if you think of this one solitary incredibly infinite powerful mind would it not need something to be aware of after a while if it's eternal just as we you know have our own attention which will stray and we will even whether we're not, to, not told to daydream so especially when we work or at school but we do do a bit it's just sort of natural and we also have our dreams at night so in this conception again there's a reason why god creates us and the world around us and the wording is very awkward here it's not that god creates us because in that sense we are connected to god it's not done to us we are part of the whole thing like we're sort of proxies for god in the world you know as, as alan watts uh, says the philosopher and theologian because of god's relative sense of boredom and loneliness he dreams up this world for his entertainment for just a richer awareness but it's not like the so-called freudian sugar daddy you know in the sky that's controlling us like a puppeteer we are connected to god as jesus said i and the father are one but the father is greater than i and also the things i do ye shall do too there, i mean there's so many references as you know i cite many different religious sources for those references they're very convergent i really was very impressed with Aldous huckley's book the perennial philosophy and he looked at what's in common to all the major religions we're taught when we grow up what the differences are and how other people do it the wrong way so to speak you know wrong sabbath day or wrong type of prayer or even maybe wrong god or gods to pray to but in the perennial philosophy he looked at what's in common though to all religions and that's what i found very very helpful to cross some of the limitations we have from our different frames of reference but back to the problem as i say so we have this fail safe that partly for this to work has to allow a certain level of spontaneity and apparently you know not being fully controlled or deterministically influenced so our minds our egos partly resist this awareness of our deeper connection because in a way it it's necessary for us to be in the outer world having a fuller experience for us all but it doesn't have to be such a dark negative hurtful reality as it is now a dream can be pleasant or it can be a nightmare and right now sadly we're living the nightmare but if we wake up and as i teach in my book which shamanic practice of dreaming the world into being or more tangibly in modern terms lucid dreaming which i give the instructions for you can learn to start being more aware of your connection to source you can learn how to manifest a different reality for yourself and others it's possible and you don't need drugs and you don't need special education i give the guidelines in the book so getting into dreaming reality into being 
it's fascinating how that is actually connected with the notion that you also speak of in the book as like the universe looking at itself through our eyes. So there's this interrelated connection and also Alan Watts notion of the universe playing hide and seek with itself and then forgetting that it was playing a game and then, and getting completely lost in the game. So through the power of dreaming, we are engaging with the dynamic creative force of the universe itself in these creative ways that can only really be accessed through our imagination and opening our minds to new horizons of possibility. And to me, the intelligence of the universe that we are a part of, that's part of us, is that exploration and of the continual unfolding of imaginal possibility. So right now we're facing some existential crises and part of your motivation to write this book was to address our ability to address these existential crises, but your approach to that is through this imaginal creative dreaming process. Yes, quite correctly. I I felt called to write and issue this book at this time because of the very serious and multiple existential threats we're facing that most people don't really want to know about and are in denial about or just trying to ignore. But it's very real and unfortunately very aware of it. So I very much felt called to do this for that purpose. Secondly, although I'm speaking right now of the neglected power and valuation of our imaginations, the book itself primarily uses science to totally obliterate the current scientific model of materialistic reductionist paradigm reality. What I discovered is that our notion of materialism, to put it in more crude terms, it's a metaphysical fiction. It's just a metaphysical fiction, a philosophical fiction, a misconception. So that's the thrust, the main thrust of the book. That's why I call it a wake-up call, to point out that science itself shows us that what we believe science shows us is incorrect. If you really understand what science has discovered, it's extremely different than what most people believe. And I'm going to say this, even the scientists themselves, when you tie it all together. That's what I tried to do, connect all the dots and seeing the underlying explanatory pattern that liberates us from this kind of blindfold of how reality really is. The other part of my book, coming back to your question, is aside from a critique of materialism, it gives the instructions for how to work with imagination, which is the source again of everything, to change either the quality of your life, of your physical health, mental well-being, quality relations with other people, relationship to the outer environment, and broadly speaking, potentially the well-being of the entire world. And yes, we have that ability, that power within us. And I try, my book's a very, as you know, concise one. It's one that you have to read slowly and reread to get the, the wealth of it and, the, and to be able to practically apply it. But I do give those instructions clearly, as I understand them from many, many different sources, which I've gone through. And it's often said that the mystical experience is ineffable, meaning you cannot put into common language what you experience in these profound altered states of reality. And so my challenge in the book wasn't just for me to understand reality, finally, as I clicked in 2018, but to find a way to convey it in a meaningful way, in words, to other people. 
So this whole you know process of writing the book was a really interesting experience for me too, to be able to make that translation. And you may find this amusing, but it's true. As you know, my book's also available as an audiobook version. And when I was listening to the recordings of the production for the audiobook and hearing what I had written in my book, it was hard for me in the moment to fully sort of comfortably believe that that's really my ideas and my wording, that that's me. Because it almost didn't feel like it was me. It almost felt like it was, some would say, channeled through me or maybe more correctly inspired. I, I don't know that I could tie so many things together in my normal frame of reference or, or have the linguistic skills that seem to come out in the book. You know, the spirit was moving me, so to speak. Yeah, I can totally relate to that. I, I have moments like that a lot. There are times when I'll wake up at like 3.30 or 4 in the morning and I'm crystal clear and there's this information that that's not new to me, but it's just coming through in a way that's crystally clear. And I have that experience at other times as well. And then there are times when I feel rather dense and, <laughs> and inarticulate and, and disconnected. So there's this fluctuating um, experience. Mm-hmm. And there's the aspect of our conditioning, our emotional conditioning from childhood that limits, affects and limits the way we can engage with the world around us and reality and how it kind of handicaps us. Like, Huge, um, hugely. Yeah, yeah the, the accumulation of emotional attachments and the great importance of learning to develop emotional regulation in the face of of a world that just feeds our emotional attachments and emotional dysfunctionality. Unfortunately, very true. Yes, and I'm starting actually a second book right now, more on managing emotions and, and ego management, because it is so getting in the way for most of us. We're living in a, a very confused time. And, you know, if I put on my psychiatric lens for a moment, even though this may sound strong, but I mean it, as I see the world right now, I see mass insanity, and I mean insanity. When people pretend, for example, that there's no longer an infectious disease in the air that can kill them or cause long COVID symptoms for the rest of their life, and they just like don't really believe it. When we have the imminence of the global warming catastrophe, because we're already experiencing it, severe droughts on the west coast of the U.S., as you know, forest fires, about a third right now or so of Pakistan is literally underwater. It's happening, and yet many, many people are in denial of climate change. They don't really understand and believe the signs, and they don't have a care to look into it. And in their own lifestyle practices, they're they're not being guided at all by more mindful, you know, utilization and consumption of our resources. So it's like literally a, say a mass insanity. And when you see, even if I could say. You know, your country, United States, which has been, you know, the leading light of democracy in the world for many, many years. And to see right now democracy failing because of the fractioning, the splitting, the disconnecting. And all of that is in the opposite direction of the underlying universal God consciousness mind. And that's why it's happening because we're getting more and more further extended out there. And as you correctly say, by emotion. So, you know, politicians playing 
on our greed and our fears. Controlling us like puppets by playing with those emotions. So at this point, we, as a species, we have to become more aware of the nature of our relationship with reality. And this is a tall order because, as you say, our culture, including our science, has instilled in us a very solid sense of materialism and reductionism. And even though we've had over a century to come to terms with the implications of quantum physics, it's still beyond what most people have so far been able to grasp about the nature of reality. And in the book, you have this line, that which is aware is not the same as that of which it's aware, and that everything we perceive through our senses is like a simulation that immerses us into a virtual reality. And that once we identify ourselves with that simulation, we become emotionally entrapped in it. So there are real consequences to the way we see the world around us, because that determines how we relate to it. That's right. For both for you know our own well-being and then and how it affects others as well. Because we're all in connection. So in, in my book, as you may recall, even going back to for a minute the material lens, as some people, you know, have understood and, and still assume so the brain and its relationship to consciousness and even point out if they say because my uh, inclusion of science i think is encyclopedic and extremely up to date so even if you want to let go of the psychic stuff and the spiritual stuff and you just go back again to brain and say well, there's some relationship to consciousness even on that level though the brain itself is not the prime organ of what we experience as consciousness as i point out physically speaking and I'm, I'm limiting when I say physically for a moment. We have at least three brains, all of us. We have the so-called head brain in our skull. We have a heart brain, and we have the brain from our intestinal system called the microbiome, which is bacteria, foreign bacteria. And the heart brain, coming back to that for a moment, the heart has more nerves extending from it to control and modify brain function then the brain has nerves to modify the heart, contrary to what people think. Secondly, the heart can also have its own hormones. It produces things like oxytocin, the so-called love hormone, the bonding hormone. The heart has its own nervous system internally. It has its own memory system. We have seen in some patients who have had cardiac heart transplants that they not only get the physical heart, but they also get aspects of the personality, even though they didn't know what to expect in terms of who the donor was, and they discovered it subsequently. So the heart plays a vital role in our, what we call our physical level, you know, processing of consciousness. And then there's the microbiome, the bacteria, and even though it sounds like, well, they're just little bugs and they're foreign, but those bugs, those bacteria, produce themselves what we call neurotransmitters, things like, again, serotonin, literally, which we previously have thought of that are just produced by the specialized nerve cells, the neurons in the brain. So even as I say on that granular level of more conventional physical science, the notion of the brain and consciousness is, is totally wrong. But I do want to come back to, you know, to deal with the aspect of there being some type of relationship, nevertheless, coming back to brain and consciousness and mind. So the brain is not the source of consciousness because the brain, again, is 
physical, it's material, and consciousness is immaterial. And as I point out in my book, not only do we have no evidence that there's a connection between the brain producing consciousness, but we can't even have a theory that explain how can something material give rise to that which is immaterial? And no one has been able to crack this, none. I think there's another way of posing that that seems obvious is that assuming the brain to be the source of consciousness is like the idea of a software operating system emerging spontaneously from a computer's hardware. So to speak, yes. And, you know, as I say, like to use some, again, analogies, trying to take these pretty um, deep and different notions and put it in plain speak. So if you use the analogy of a radio for the brain, uh, radio is a physical thing and it receives signals from a other location and it processes them, modulates them. Plus it has certain external controls usually for us, like we can choose a different station, volume and on off switch and so on. So I think the brain is a little more analogous to a radio in the sense that if something physically happens to a radio, which is tuned into a particular station, that program coming from that broadcasting station doesn't disappear. Anyone else with a radio, even in the same location, who turns it on to that station would hear the broadcast that now the broken radio no longer can receive. So we need to make that distinction between just because something can receive something doesn't mean it's also what generates the origin of it. Now, a radio again processes a signal, and I think the brain also processes consciousness. Sometimes it's been called like a reducing valve or a filter. And when we have experiences like mystical experiences, spontaneous religious experiences, psychedelic experiences sometimes, the filtering function of the brain is overridden. And so we have a richer and fuller expanse of awareness. In fact, they have found when people are in these expanded states of consciousness and you measure the electrical activity of the brain, the brain actually becomes quieter. It actually kind of moves out of the way. So there is a relationship between brain and consciousness, but not the one people believe. It's not the source of consciousness of mind. It's a receiver. And why is that even important? Because on this level of reality, and the way I look at it, this is a level of a reality. It's not the whole thing by far. It's a very small portion. And it's deceptive to think, again, this virtual reality is it. But it is, nevertheless, again, a level of reality we're in, for good and bad. And it is in our interest, for example, to learn how to keep our brain healthy so it functions better for us. Otherwise, you know, you have all types of conditions. There's all types, of course, mental illness conditions, even the notion of just, you know, keeping your mind, you know, sharp. And there's so many aspects, again, of things we could do physically with the brain that do have relevance for us. Is it, you know, the whole picture? No, but on this level, it still is important. And even though, again, I say our primary underlying reality is consciousness itself, not materialism. But on this level where we are separate material beings, you still can hurt yourself or someone else physically. It hurts. We can bleed. It's just this isn't the whole picture. It's just part of it. Just like, you know, if we're waking up from a dream. So we may have had a particularly strong experience, but that was then. Now we're awake. So it's how we respond to these experiences that we have that yes. determines how we move into the future. 
and you know the Buddhist teaching about non-attachment and back to where we were talking before about you know emotional regulation and the ego entrapment is very helpful. So in mindfulness, we want to learn to be aware of reality, which is the, what we call the here and now, because yesterday is gone. It's not part of reality right now. Tomorrow may or may not happen. Certainly any way we envision it or you know extrapolation it's all theoretical we don't know the only reality we know is right now and in mindfulness you want to learn to mostly be centered or anchored or as they call rooted in the here and now and it makes such a fundamental difference in our well-being and our lucidity of consciousness and our feeling of connection and empathy for others yeah, you just brought in that empathy for others aspect of this, that we have a choice in the way we respond to our experience in the world. By responding through fear, we separate ourselves from others. And when we respond or when we have an experience of love or connection, it becomes very natural to recognize each other as kindred beings, even to the extent of you know, the depth of empathetic experience can be very, very profound. And yet it's so easy to distract us away from that by stimulating emotional reactivity. Yeah. Ironically, you know, in so-called pre-scientific times, it was thought, as you may know, in many primitive cultures, that it was the heart that was the center of consciousness, not the head brain. Mm-hmm. And as I was just mentioning very briefly before, the heart is, so to speak, a brain as well, even though it hasn't been appreciated scientifically or in the broader public. But the research is very strong, by the way, very strong. It's not theoretical. We need to get more in touch with sometimes it's called the wisdom of the heart or the path of the heart, which sort of opens the gate to an intuitive awareness, intuitive guidance. That's a much better way of relating when you encounter people occasionally and you just feel a natural sense of ease and comfort, you're sort of feeling it at a heart level, even if it's someone you already know. And whether or not you have any sort of attraction or physical attraction to them, just that comfort from that level. When we're more into our head brain, so to speak, it's more like dealing with people, again, who are very much other, so we're othering others. It's a disconnection. It's more, again, to feed the ego. You know, what's in it for me? How do I advance myself? It's a very different level of connection to me come from your heart. And even just the conscious awareness that you can shift in your body when you're out and about your inner awareness, proprioceptive awareness, to be more in the heart area, and you're out, you know, in some public situation, it feels different. There's so much we're not taught, you know, that even if we stayed on the physical level, even there, again, there, there's so much other things that we could do that we're not aware of or do in a better way. But as you know, I'm saying by far, even this physical realm, as sophisticated as it might be, you know, intriguing, entertaining as it might be, is a small, small part of the much greater total reality. And for our well-being individually and collectively, we need to get this clear. Existential threats mean existence. There's only so much heat and temperature humans can survive in, period. Air conditioning requires energy. Energy causes more carbon dioxide production, increasing, speeding up global warming. There's no physical way out of this. And we don't have a lot of time. It's quite critical right now 
And that's why I say I wrote this as a wake-up call. And this is something that our brains should grasp because the head brain, the part that analyzes and assesses these things, but it's still in this mode of separation, of separating itself from the world and looking at it as if it's separate from it, which creates a kind of dynamic that makes it very difficult to do what the heart naturally does, which is to connect with the world and to be able to relate to it as living and alive. A good example of that is, you know, when you are out and about and you encounter an infant, you know, in a stroller or something like that, and you don't know the parents, you don't, haven't seen the infant before, very often those little babies will make eye contact with us. And sometimes they smile. And when you allow yourself to make contact with a baby you don't know, you know, whose baby it is, and there's no relationship with the parents or anything of that nature, when you allow yourself to make that eye contact and experience that smile, and not many of us might smile back, you feel it in your heart. So my point is even, you know, a baby, which is not yet taught our social value system, is interested naturally in seeking out contact, connection with strangers. It senses the sense of connection, even though for us as adults, we're more aware of the separation. Mm -hmm. So getting back to the nature of reality, talk about what you refer to as the plasticity of reality and how once we become good at being a non-attached observer of our thoughts and feelings, how we can more effectively engage in the kind of imaginal process of reshaping reality that you talk about. So there's many ways to speak on this subject of what I call the plasticity of reality. And by plasticity, as you realize, I mean the kind of flexibility, it's not fixed. When I think back to where this comes from, you know, in my very first chapter of my book, where I say things are not as they seem, I mentioned the example in the martial arts where students, including young children, as happened to my son when he was very young, are taught in classes like Taekwondo and Karate to smash wooden boards with their bare hands in one blow. And I repeat, kids, like my son was maybe 10 when, when he had his class, they don't wear a glove. There's no protection on the hand. And it's real wood. And it's not some flimsy wood like balsa wood. And almost always the people who are you know, trained to do this, be they children or not, they do it successfully and on the first blow. And I was really curious <laughs> way back when as a father and asked my son when I watched him do a demonstration in his class the first time when he was around 10 of Taekwondo. And I asked him afterwards, how do they teach you to do that? I'm talking with Howard Eisenberg. He's a medical doctor trained in psychology and psychiatry. He's been an associate professor of medicine at the University of Vermont and a lecturer in parapsychology at the University of Toronto. He's the author of Inner Spaces, Parapsychological Explorations of the Mind. And his new book that we've been talking about is Dream It to Do It, The Science and the Magic, which is the culmination of his lifelong quest to learn how reality works. And this is the Magical Mystery Tour on WGDR Plainfield, WGDH Hardwick, Central Vermont Community Radio. And I asked him afterwards, how do they teach you to do that? So I knew something else was going on, because I know most of us wouldn't want to just, with full force, smash a wooden board with our bare hand, because it would hurt. And if you're also doing it in a public situation, some of us might even be embarrassed. Well, what if we hit the board really hard and it doesn't break compared to other people? 
you know, it's embarrassing then in a competitive sense. Anyway, so I was curious to ask him after the demonstration what he was taught. And he said they taught them not to hit the board, but rather to strike beyond the board. And I, you know, I've since checked out with a number of other people who've had martial art training experience, and they are familiar with this. So here we have the same the granular way, physical reality, a board and a person using their bare hand. And these could be young kids, not very strong. He's going to hit that board with one blow, break the board and not hurt their hand. Now, if you, you know, told most people about this challenge and asked them to do it, I think most people shy away from it and they'd have some skepticism they could do it or and do it perhaps without being hurt. But by imagining, in a sense, that there's no board there physically, you know, you're focusing beyond the board. You're not affected by the physical board. So that's an example, back to your question, of plasticity of reality. People see it a certain way, and it defines their relationship with it. Other people learn to perceive it in a different way, and they have a different relationship with it. Or we could go, you know, into one of my other fields more conventionally, if you like medicine. The placebo effect is real, the so-called sugar pill, which basically means if you believe something is going to be of help, some helpful substance, or by the way, surgical procedures, often you will be, or the converse. If you're very suspicious that it may have a bad reaction on you, not may not be successful, it's more likely to go that way too. So our thoughts determine the outcome of even medical treatments, more than we'd like to admit, as I mentioned earlier with the recent study on antidepressants came out about a month ago and said, almost all of it is just placebo effect because people expected it to help. So they felt some benefit, but it didn't really help them. So how could we use that understanding in an effective way, particularly in the context of what we're facing in the world today? You know, it's awareness again of awareness and all the choices. So even coming back to my book for a moment, as I explained, when I felt I, as I understood this and saw what was happening in our world, I felt I had to speak out, even though I had to publish this and rush and uh, stop doing a lot of the other things I was doing to have this come out as soon as possible. And I had published my earlier book, as you know, Inner Spaces, half century previously, by a major publisher at the time. And so I first contacted some major publishers, and I said I was working on this important book, and I asked them, how long would it take, if they liked the manuscript, for it to physically be in production out in the public market? And they said, realistically, one to two years. And that's after they have a manuscript that they've approved. The first it has to be read, and usually by more than one person. Often they have some comments back to the writer, you know, make some modifications. So when they say a year or two years, that's a year or two years after, you know, it has passed muster, which could be several month period. And I thought, there's such an urgency right now in terms of the existential threats, I can't afford to wait. So I used my own funds to learn how to self-publish, which I did not know about before, to get my book out, in record time, even the people that I hired to help me in production, who were pros at this, said it would take maybe a year their way, still a lot less than through the uh, regular publishing houses. And Tonio did the whole thing in five months. Five months. Plasticity of reality. Just because people say this is the way it is, this is the way it has to be, doesn't mean that way. Even when I go back to, you know, be able to do my research in telepathy at McGill over half a century ago, 
as a joint program in medicine and psychology simultaneously. Back then, I was told by the administration of McGill University that it wasn't possible. And I said, why? And they said, because no student has ever been in two degree programs simultaneously. You'd be the first. And so you can't do it because no one else has done it. And I said, aren't we supposed to be the leading edge of knowledge? And they said, well, there's more practical problems. Every student has a computer ID number. You'd be in two different faculties, faculty of medicine, the faculty of graduate studies simultaneously. How's the computer going to handle that? And I remember this is a half century ago. And I said, isn't the computer supposed to serve us? Or are we supposed to conform to it? Anyway, eventually, <laughs> I did get their permission. And I have those two degrees, uh, the master psychology and the MD degree. But my point is, if you looked at the initial reality, it was no can do. And they gave me more than one reason. They even have other reasons financially, too, by the way. They said, if you're two degree programs, how do we calculate your tuition? Because you're not exactly here 200% more time. You still be on campus. And I said, I'm not looking for a discount. So when you have this belief in yourself that you don't have to just accept the way things are or were, but many of us, again, one, we don't have that awareness, that imaginative awareness. And frankly, we don't have the courage to take the risk, to fail, to make a fool of ourselves, to do something costly. Again, we're, we're more driven by the fear. And we've been trained to think inside the established box. Absolutely, yes. And there's an example you give in the book that I really loved about out-of-the-box thinking, where you ask, what is the shortest distance between yep. two points? Yep. And that's like adding a new dimension to the way we think about reality. And when we add a new dimension, we're essentially adding a whole new paradigm to our perception of reality. Yes. And, you know, even uh, talk about, you know, the apps being developed for smartphones, which is a very creative space these days. So basically you have, you know, these software code experts who dream up some new application and they play around with the, the bits of data and they manifest it. I mean, when you think about our cell phones these days, especially the so-called smartphones, which most of us may be working with, they are sort of magical in terms of how many things you can do with them. But again, it came out of imagination. Everything does. Mm -hmm. And there's an interesting thing about when we dream, when we use our imagination, because most people tend to focus on what they don't want rather than what they really do want. Exactly. Often mm -hmm. completely losing touch with what they most deeply want and what's most important to them. That's right. I mean, for a lot of us from an early age on, you know, we're discouraged from sort of getting in touch with our intuitive sense of how we want to be in the world, what we want to do. We're shaped by our family guidelines and sometimes pressures and others in our, our cultures as to, you know, what path we can take and how we have to approach it. There's not many of us at all who are fortunate to have parents, family backgrounds that encourage us just, you know, to find ourselves in the world, be our own person. That's not generally how it's done. It's more like crawling to lying. And you talk about in the dreaming process that at a certain point we need to actually choose to live fearlessly into our desired dream. And that in this world can be such a challenge in the face of the seemingly overwhelming obstacles and endless distractions around us. It seems that way, but um, back to chapter one, 
things are not as they seem. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So it seems that way. It doesn't mean like, you know, it, it is totally that way and has to be that way. Just my point. Like, again, I wouldn't be writing a book like this and talking to who I am right now if I didn't, in my mind, have the ability to imagine somehow, somehow enough people will get this message, will share it, will collaborate, will connect in their hearts with compassion, and will change it all together. So if I couldn't imagine that, then I wouldn't have written the book and I wouldn't be talking to you this way. And I'm not telling you it's easy because I'm very aware of all the other things we're talking about that are not okay, but I have this power of imagination. And something semi-magical happened for me in writing the book. As you know, I, I said earlier, when I read the finished book and also heard the audiobook version of it, it was hard to believe, remember, I actually had those ideas and had those thoughts and worded in such a way. I mean, to some degree, it was like a revelatory experience. It was like someone called channeling. It was coming through me. Historically, it's been considered almost impossible to describe the experiences and altitudes of consciousness, things like mystical experiences or psychedelic experiences in conventional language. And that was part of the challenge, not just having this understanding of how reality works, but also how can I use familiar language to explain it to others so they'll understand it. Yeah, I was thinking about that a lot when I was thinking about this conversation we're going to have. Mm-hmm. And you say that everything depends on our level of consciousness. Because everything is a level of consciousness, correct. And that we need to slow down our monkey mind in order to open a portal of access to, again, what you call the deeper structures of right. reality. And again, that goes back, as referencing just briefly before, you know, the, the Buddhist teaching about non-attachments. You want to be aware of the here and now, but not attached, not overly, if you want to call it distracted by anything that comes up in your mind or apparently around you. And if you are able to do that, if you're able to keep your mind free of external distractions and stay in the here and now, you can then experience the depth, the infinite depth of it, both for your well-being, for intuitive wisdom, for more compassionate connection with others. And that's accessed through that and I love the term portal, the portal of being in in this present here and now point. Yeah. As I say, that the now is your point of power. Yeah. And it's ironic that that is actually the most powerful thing we have access to. Yes. And we live in a world, again, which is very inequitable in the distribution of resources and opportunities. And yet this reality that I think I've come to understand and I'm trying to share with others now is one in which we're all a part of and we all equally participate. We just have forgotten or don't realize it. So mm-hmm. all, everyone, you know, all sentient beings have access to exactly the same potential level and richness of reality. Unlike the material world, which is very unequally distributed and is not sustainable. And through that point of being present in the here and now, we can actually reshape that outer reality in a way that is mutually beneficial for all of us. Absolutely. You know, even, for example, on on the political side in the United States, which is going through a very difficult period now, as you know, some people, I would say probably the majority, passively rely on the existing leaders to duke it out, 
and kind of may the best you know person win, so to speak. And that's kind of almost their attitude to it all. Some obviously become more radicalized, more vehement, more sensitive to the other side as they're caught up in this. But possibly any individual in the United States, anyone listening right now to this, can realize it doesn't have to just be up to the elected or traditional political leaders. Why can't I use my voice, whether it's in my community or on the internet or you know some other medium? Why can't I speak out for this is not okay with me anymore? I don't think you know what you're doing. I don't think you have our best interests at heart. Why wait for the politician to tell us this? It's, it's, it's contrary to their own interests. They're in it for themselves, mostly, their own egos. But it is still a free country. The people could individually come to this awareness. The leaders are making a mess of it all. The whole quality of life is greatly deteriorating. It's not just threatened in the future. It's greatly deteriorating. And it doesn't have to be that way. And they don't have to wait and hope that leaders will somehow be more inspired or new ones will come to the fore. Why can't they be the ones who bring it to the fore? I'm not a politician. I'm not a billionaire. But I decided I had to share something with the whole world. And I am. I'm doing what I can. I am aware that, you know, saying to people, I bring a wake-up book for the world, a global wake-up book, to help avert all these imminent disasters. I'm not very aware on many levels it sounds crazy or just wasteful, but I don't have to buy into that. I can choose to imagine it might be possible, and I'd rather be one who tries than who doesn't. And there's a, an old parable of the two wolves that can be applied to how we relate to the world around us. Yes, the Cherokee, you know, legend of the two wolves. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Could you share that with us and explain how that dynamic works in the way we relate to the world around us and, of course, how that affects the world around us because of the way we're relating to it? Well, we're currently way too affected by our emotions, again, largely fear and greed. And in that Cherokee legend of the two wolves, there's a young boy witnessing two wolves fighting, and he's with his grandfather. And he asks his grandfather, which wolf will win? And the grandfather puts it out as in, yes, it's a competition, it's a contest, but the one that is fed, the one that is given more attention, is the one that will be dominating. So it's not really meant about just a battle of two wolves, but how we deal with emotions. So for example, if you're experiencing fear, anxiety, or anger, or depression, if you feed it, which many people do, so when they feel anxious, they ruminate, they dwell on it. And same thing with anger, so they, like it boils up more and more so. So you have to realize it's a choice. If you feed those emotions, they will get stronger. But you have a choice not to. You can step back, again, non-attachment, and choose a wiser course that would be more ultimately satisfying and beneficial. So again, the legend is more about the contest of emotions. And it's not just what happens, what comes up for you, it's what you do with it, which we sometimes call emotional management or emotional regulation. And right now we're living in emotional dysregulation, big time, hugely. As you may know, the, the mental health crisis is unprecedented. The population surveys of anxiety and depression, again, unprecedented high levels right now. And there's a wonderful quote in the book 
from Viktor Frankl that between stimulus and response is a space, and in that space is our freedom to choose. Yeah, I love that because for me, that space is what I refer to as the spaciousness of consciousness. So like the way you are experiencing, seeing things like right now, if I can get another analogy, it's let's say through a telephoto lens. And if you realize you can switch from your telephoto lens to a wide angle lens, suddenly you have you know a sense of the bigger picture and more appropriate perspective. And it's interesting because there's another line of yours in the book that the only way out is in. That's right. Because outwardly, it's again, the, the world of materialism and individual separations. Inwardly, as I said, we have this infinite resourcefulness and we are ultimately connected. Everyone, everything. Yes. When people can't solve a problem by conventional, you know, thinking, sometimes they do creative thinking, right? Which is going in and reconfiguring all the things that, you know, they might know or can access. When people work with intuition, again, they're relying on some inner guidance as opposed to what they were taught or what the computer screen might display. So that's again going in. When people are able to contribute to their own self-healing of serious physical illnesses, even if it's indirectly unknown to them because it's a placebo effect thing and they think it's actually a drug, but it's really their own minds. Again, it's from within that they're healing, not from without. Yes, and it's fascinating how the universe actually reflects back to us our level of consciousness in a dynamic and co-creative process. Yes, because again, we're all connected, everything. Just like in a dream, you you know, you can dream of other people in your dream, other creatures, other physical objects, other places, other locations, but it's all just coming out of your dream. So understanding and experiencing and sensing this dynamic interconnected relationship that we have with this vast and vastly intelligent universe that we are part of. Mm -hmm. And there's this illusion of our being being as some people say, encapsulated in skin. Yes. That we are so much more than that. And it's so far beyond what we have been taught. Yeah, and even if we stayed in the realm of science, as I said, you know, come up with polymath and just, you know, say she will need to learn all types of things, even if to say in terms of more conventional science, I told you like the notion of, you know, the heart and the research too with the microbiome, which is particularly rich right now, you know, is totally questioning again, the assumption that which is still out there, that the brain produces consciousness, period, the head brain. That there's so much that we just take again as assumed or accepted in the scientific realm, which isn't. But the scientists themselves are not necessarily that aware of what's happening in other areas of science. And the way the academic process works right now, many researchers have to, you know, specialize and they have to publish in research journals to to keep their tenure on faculty. It's not necessarily guided by what's of most importance to them, really, if they ever think about it, and what would be of greater benefit for the world. And you briefly alluded to the, the Oracle at Delphi, and a few years ago, I read a wonderful book that talked about some aspects of what was going on back then around the Oracle of Delphi and the Eleusinian Mysteries, mm -hmm. which were going on during the time of ancient Greece and also in the early centuries after Jesus, and which is believed to have been psychedelically inspired. But yeah. the key point is that back then, 
everyone was expected to make at least one pilgrimage in their life to the temple of Delphi and mm-hmm. and engage to fully engage in those Eleusinian mysteries. And right before the Romans outlawed it and destroyed the temple, one of I believe it was a Roman statesman who said that if the mysteries disappear from the world, that life will become unlivable. And you know, right after mm-hmm. the Eleusinian mysteries were outlawed and, mm-hmm. and the temple was destroyed, that's when Rome started to crumble. And mm-hmm. in the sense, humanity has been falling apart and in decline ever since. Yeah. You know, I, I also think of a, another quotation from the Bible, without vision, the people perish. Exactly. So went there, they were going for a visionary experience. Yeah, right. To actually inform their lives and by extension, the evolution of society and, and the world around them. Yeah. Correct. So that's the task we face today is to find a way back to that somehow. And quickly. Yeah. <laughs> and, and quickly, because it should be obvious that all everything that we have been doing up till now not only has not been working, but has been catastrophically counterproductive. That's right. And, you know, not only for our particular personal interest in our experience of humanity as such, but for all, you know, the sentient beings, creatures on this planet. I mean, we're, we're seeing, as you may know, too, record extinctions of species, extinctions, not just reductions, because, of, again, of how we're disturbing the ecological environment. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. So it's been wonderful talking with you. Thank you. It's been provoking of thought, and I really appreciate your deeper interest as well, Tonio. Thank you. That was Howard Eisenberg. He's a medical doctor trained in psychology and psychiatry. He's been an associate professor of medicine at the University of Vermont and a lecturer in parapsychology at the University of Toronto. And he's the author of Inner Spaces, Parapsychological Explorations of the Mind. And his new book that we've been talking about is Dream It to Do It, The Science and the Magic, which is the culmination of his lifelong quest to learn how reality works. I find it hard to take 
When people run in circles, it's a very, very bad world. Mad world. Children waiting for the day they feel good. Happy birthday, happy birthday.
And that's it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for listening. If you missed any of the show or would like to hear it again, you can find this and all Magical Mystery Tour shows at soundcloud.com slash WGDR. And until next time, take good care of yourselves and each other. Thank you.